Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. Uh, today, we're going to start with another joke at the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. Uh, again, uh, emails with any questions, concerns, uh, jokes, or other things. Uh, today's uh, comment comes from an anonymous viewer. Uh, anonymous viewer uh, email uh, or listener says, uh, Dr. List, I know you like to make fun of surgeons, but I have an anesthesiology joke for you. Okay, I love doctor jokes. I don't know if anybody's told, uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, uh, but I love I love jokes. Uh, so, okay, uh, what are the ABCs of anesthesiology? Answer, airway, book, chair. Oh, I like that. That's a pretty good one. I like that. Okay, uh, so any uh, real questions, concerns, uh, topics you want to t- discuss on the podcast, uh, let me know at primarycarepod at gmail.com. And anyways, we will start the episode. The Primary Care Podcast is written and by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast, produced in my own time, solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past, or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast today. We're doing something pretty fun. I'm uh, very excited. Uh, I've collected uh, a ton of studies over the past several months, and we're going to dig into some of them today in something I'm calling No Stupid Questions. Uh, We're going to be talking about a lot of topics uh, about uh, what does the evidence say about very specific but very weird topics. No no big topics today, but just a a laundry list of uh, different topics. So let's jump into it. All right, so the first question, is tramadol safer than hydrocodone? All right, so big topic. I don't know if I can explain and answer all of those details. Uh, Obviously, all opioids are associated with uh, overdoses. They're uh, associated with risks of uh, addiction and habit formation. But specifically, tramadol is supposed to be a weaker and shorter-acting opioid agonist. And many clinicians tend to believe that tramadol is safer than other opioids, and therefore they maybe use it more or uh, with a lot less caution than other opioids. Now, this study was from May of 2019, so pretty recent study. It looked at 445,000 patients, and these were people who were opioid naive, had not been opioids, had not been on opioids before they went through uh, any surgery. So at the end of the surgery, they uh, looked at what percent of these people had filled prescriptions. And of that uh, 445,000, 358,000 filled prescriptions for opioids. Okay. So most commonly prescribed opioids in the study, hydrocodone was 53%, oxycodone was uh, 38%, and tramadol was a small percentage of post-surgical opioids in single digits uh, at 4%. But very interestingly, they looked at in the six months after surgery, what percent of these patients continued to use opioids after six months after surgery? Very interesting, even though it was a very significantly smaller percentage of opioid uh, use in the tramadol, tramadol was statistically a much significantly higher adjusted risk for receiving additional opioid prescriptions six months after surgery. So, uh, in fact, in this case, using tramadol as your opioid resulted in much longer and prolonged use in many more patients than using standard hydrocodone or oxycodone. 
Now, this is not the first and only study to show that that tramadol is not, quote, safer than other opioids and that it is potentially just as habit-forming or addicting. But I believe, to my knowledge anyways, in a quick PubMed search, shows that this is the first time that we can maybe definitively say that tramadol is associated with increased use of opioids. Um, And again, that's just me doing a quick little PubMed search, so maybe I'm wrong on that. But again, uh, the question is, is tramadol safer or a better choice than hydrocodone for an opioid? Uh, At least when it comes to getting your patients off opioids, in this study, it was actually associated with a worse chance of getting your patients off opioids for post-surgical pain. So some caveats to this study. This does not actually look at the actual addictive properties. Some of these people actually went on to get opioid use disorder. We don't know if there were any other, uh, I don't know if there's any other trials that support this or do not support this. So again, uh, take it with a grain of salt, but maybe a bigger grain of salt as just feel safer knowing that tramadol is not necessarily safer than hydrocodone. Next topic of discussion. Uh, Should oral antibiotics be routinely given for ingrown toenails. And this comes to us from 2019, the, A, uh, the AAFP journal. Um, should, they, uh, should they be uh, given for uh, ingrown toenails? And the answer is uh, not routinely, no. Uh, it has no process in wound healing. It has no process in, uh, in treating the actual ingrown toenail. Caveat, unless there is significant cellulitis around the infection. So for a simple ingrown toenail, uh, even with area of localized redness, as long as there's not surrounding cellulitis or surrounding uh, infection, you do not need to give oral antibiotics for ingrown toenails. Just probably treat them and remove them. That's a short one. Wow, that was under a minute? That I, I, I did something in under a minute? That's, that's phenomenal. So the answer is no. Don't use oral antibiotics. Okay, moving on. All right, next question. Uh, are gabapentin and Lyrica, the gabapentinoids, effective at treating different types of pain? And I guess the question is, how effective are they? So we're going to nail a couple of these. This is a really good article, I think. This is actually an editorial in the American uh, Academy of Family Practice, Practice Journal, uh, AFP. Um, this is from uh, December 1st of 2019. Uh, those of you who saw this was a great editorial, uh, very, very uh, good article. So basically, you know, gabapentin was first approved by the FDA in 1993 and was approved for treatment of seizures and then had a second indication for post-herpetic neuralgia. Uh, Lyrica first marketed in 2004, uh, FDA approved for diabetic neuropathy, post-herpetic neuralgia, fibromyalgia, and pain associated with spinal cord injuries. Uh, suddenly, gabapentinoids uh, became super uh, off-label treatment for all kind of chronic pain issues and diseases. Uh, But what evidence is there to support their use? Um, There's a really good table, uh, if you read this or didn't read this from that December 1st article, and it looked at both gabapentin and Lyrica. And so let's talk about each of these conditions and to see exactly if it's effective or not effective. Uh, So acute zoster pain. So not post-herpetic neuralgia, but actually acute during the episode of zoster. Uh, Gabapentin has one trial, and it's a negative trial, not any better than placebo. Uh, Lyrica, same thing, one trial, and it's negative. Back pain, radiculopathy. Uh, In gabapentin, there are four trials for that. Three of them are negative, and one is very, very slightly positive, uh, 0.7%. Uh, point difference compared to placebo on a 0 to 10 pain scale. Uh, one trial of Lyrica for back pain and radiculopathy, uh, it is negative. Uh, uh, 
when we talk about carpal tunnel syndrome, a gabapentin negative trial, uh, central neuropathic pain, uh, Lyrica one negative, one positive. The positive study was actually pretty significant, uh, 2.2 points on a 0 to 10 pain scale. Chronic pancreatitis, uh, positive for Lyrica, no studies in gabapentin. Uh, chronic pelvic pain, negative for Lyrica uh, for men. Chronic pelvic pain for women, uh, negative for gabapentin, uh, no, no benefit. Uh, diabetic neuropathy, uh, interestingly, uh, you know, FDA's approved use on this for Lyrica, but in gabapentin, there are five trials, two of which are negative, and three are positive, but the difference is about a point on a zero to 10 point scale. So uh, pretty minimal effectiveness in terms of treating diabetic neuropathy. Uh, fibromyalgia is FDA approved in Lyrica. Gabapentin is positive. They have, do have a positive trial as well, a 0.9 difference on a zero to 10 pain scale. Um, no benefit in HIV neuropathy. Uh, no benefit in, well, I shouldn't say that, uh, for phantom limb pain, no benefit for Lyrica. Phantom limb pain, one trial negative and one trial positive for gabapentin. Uh, spinal cord injuries, uh, FDA has approved Lyrica. Gabapentin, one, t one test, one trial was positive, one was negative. Um, and unspecified neuropathies. Gabapentin, interestingly, has one positive scale, one positive trial, uh, which showed a decent uh, improvement on the pain scale, and F and Lyrica was a negative for unspecified neuropathy. So uh, I ran through that really, really quickly, but I think the take-home point is that, uh, you know, gabapentin, while it is cheap uh, for most patients to take, okay, and, you know, it's used for a lot of chronic pain management in primary care. And I get that, you know, this is a difficult topic and it's really hard to manage. And I, I struggle treating chronic pain all the time. And gabapentin and Lyrica can be uh, easy to prescribe because uh, they're they're so familiar and we're, and we're used to using them. The actual benefits, the actual scientific proof that these treatments are effective for really anything is pretty limited. Uh, I just rattled off a ton of negative studies. Um, you know, uh, you know, there's very, very few indications where gabapentin has actually been proven to be very significantly uh, shown a significant benefit in pain treatment. Lyrica, similar. You know, Lyrica has benefit uh, has has FDA approved treatment for fibromyalgia and diabetic neuropathy, but again, very minimal impact on those diseases. Lyrica certainly costs a whole lot more than gabapentin. Um, certainly, uh, you know, I think all of us have seen or at least heard of cases of patients who have uh, abused Lyrica. Um, I, I've rarely heard, I, I have heard of one case of somebody abusing gabapentin. Um, but I think that with the amount of side effects that these drugs cause, knowing at least in our own brains that these are not the most efficacious medicines and have significant side effects, I think that's important to know before we just start slapping everyone on gabapentin without fully assessing their uh their benefit from them compared to placebo. So again, uh, is gabapentin and Lyrica effective for different types of chronic pain? The answer is uh, minimally and really depends on the type of chronic pain because a lot of these trials have shown no benefits uh, whatsoever. Um, another one I didn't mention, complex regional pain syndrome, which is really notoriously difficult to treat anyways. Uh, no trials for Lyrica supporting its use and uh, gabapentin is negative. So again, just uh, very, very little benefit. Next question, what is the evidence or does white coat hypertension actually matter? White coat hypertension, obviously referring to blood pressures elevated in the office, but not out of the office. 
it's an important it's important impact not only on quality metrics uh, if you have a patient with high blood pressure and they're if their blood pressure is elevated in the clinic versus not elevated in the clinic, uh, ambulatory readings you know, might improve your quality metrics a little bit, but does it actually matter and what does it mean? For patients' long-term prognosis and cardiovascular disease, mortality, et cetera, uh, it doesn't actually matter. You know, imagine walking to the clinic and seeing my ugly face and me coming at you with all this energy. Hey, how are you doing? How's it going? Uh, I mean, of course your blood pressure is going to get jacked up. I mean, also imagine you start talking about Husker football in your appointment, as I do with many of my patients. And I mean, that'll jack your blood pressure up by like 90 points because, oh, so atrociously awful. Okay, anyways. Um, so I think there's, I, I, I think everyone understands uh, the concept behind white coat hypertension and why potentially there's some elevations in certain patients. So the actual study we're looking at today uh, is from, let me pull it up here, uh, June 2019, uh, white coat hypertension. This is a meta-analysis. Researchers uh, analyzed 27 observational trials with uh, an N of 64,000, both with in-office and out-of-office blood pressure monitoring available. Uh, white coat hypertension obviously being in, elevated in the office but normal in ambulatory settings. Now, white coat hypertension in this meta-analysis was associated with a 36% higher risk for cardiovascular events and 33% higher risk for mortality across all 27 studies compared to people who have normotension. Now, compared to patients with regular benign essential hypertension or other causes of secondary hypertension, they had lower mortality, but it was still significantly elevated compared to normal patients. So it the very short answer is yes, blood, white coat hypertension, blood pressures do absolutely matter, and treating them is probably helpful, although we don't have that data, um, but it does make an important contribution and provides contemporary data supporting guidelines that recommend out-of-office blood pressure monitoring. Again, pretty nice to know if your patient is truly having white coat hypertension or if they are having hypertension outside of the office. So uh, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, very important and also very helpful. Again, your white coat hypertensive uh, patients less problematic in terms of overall health outcomes compared to benign essential hypertension, but definitely higher risk than the normal population. So does white coat hypertension matter? Yes, it does. Uh, side note, uh, AAFP Magazine, those of you who prescribe to that or subscribe to that, sorry, uh, they have this always P-O-E-M, a poem, uh, Patient-Oriented Evidence That Matters. Uh, this is a case of one of those patient-oriented outcomes that probably does matter, uh, the fact that your white coat hypertension does actually impact your health. Uh, I don't like the term poem. Uh, I think it should be called poo, a patient-oriented outcome. It's a poo, not a poem. So hopefully today we gave you uh, three poos that you can use in your clinic um, and that hopefully your medical practice will be changed or at least your medical knowledge will be a little bit uh, upgraded by these three poos. If you liked going through these three no stupid questions, uh, I'd like to do more of these little quick hitters. Uh, let me know at primarycarepod at gmail.com for any feedback you have. Uh, and with that, let's wrap this bad boy up. So how'd we do today? Enjoy what you're listening to? Any suggestions on topics for the podcast or recommendations of articles? 
please send them to me at primarycarepod at gmail.com. That's all one word, primarycarepod at gmail.com. We'll also take any comments, questions, or concerns about the episode. If you want me to read your comment or question on the next episode, I can certainly throw them in. Please include whether you want to that comment or question to be anonymous or credited with your name. Please check the episode details for links for free CME. And so we'll wrap up another episode saying thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. This has been Dr. Mark List reminding you you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks and have a great day.